This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back to another exciting episode from the Cardio Nerds ACHD series. This is Agnes Coso back with the amazing Dan Ambender to explore the diagnosis and management of atrial septal defects. We are so excited to have our fit lead, Dr. Sarah Fonhurst from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, as well as our ACHD expert, Dr. Richard Krasuski from the Duke University School of Medicine. Just to tell you a little background about our fit lead, Sarah, she initially attended the Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine for medical school, after which she went on to OSF Healthcare to complete her MedPeds residency. After that, she went on to complete her Pediatric Cardiology Fellowship at Bonner Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, after which she joined her current appointment, which is as an ACHD Fellow at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Welcome to Cardio Nerds, Sarah. Thanks, Agnes. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Krasuski, who is Director of the ACHD Program at Duke University. He originally received his medical degree from Harvard Medical School and went on to residency in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, followed by his fellowship in cardiology at Duke University School of Medicine. He's gone on to a very successful career, both clinically as a director of both the Cleveland Clinic ACHD program and now at the Duke University School of Medicine, as well as through extensive publications which have helped to move the field forward. Thank you so much for joining us today so we can benefit from your expertise and wisdom. Thanks for your kind words, Sarah. Dr. Krasuski, as an ACHD fellow myself, I'd love to hear how you got interested in ACHD. Well, that's a great question. So when I was a resident at the Brigham and Women's, of course, I had an opportunity to take care of Mike Landsberg's patients, which were always a real challenge and fun. And I always racked my brain a little bit. But when I got into fellowship, I was really thinking all I wanted to do was to be a general clinical cardiologist and do some research at the Duke Clinical Research Institute. And so I actually met with Tom Bayshore, who was the head of the fellowship at that point, and sat down with him. And at one point, Tom said, well, what about adult congenital heart disease? And I said, geez, you know, they're a great group of patients. I love taking care of them, but I'm really clueless. Whenever I walk in the room, I'm scratching my head trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, Tom looked at me and said, well, why would you want to do something you're already good at? Wouldn't you like to have a challenge? And I sat back and thought about it. I thought, gee, that's kind of an interesting way to spin this. And so I, uh, I took him up on the offer to join him for clinic for a year and the rest of it is really history. I, I, I saw the patients. I really enjoyed taking care of them. And it's just been so great since that time. I mean, I, I think I can't remember a day that I don't see patients in clinic where I'm not taken by a particular story of somebody who's accomplished so much despite their limitations and their functional anatomy. And it's really, it's just, it's such a great field. And there's so much 
I think, joy that comes out of it. And it's, it's so interesting to hear from somebody who was told perhaps, you know, that they wouldn't survive to adulthood or that they wouldn't be able to go to school or that they wouldn't be able to hold a job or whatever it may be. And they've overcome so much to get where they are. So it's really, it's just been such a joy ever since. And I've been very lucky because I got trained in interventional. I got trained in imaging. For a while, I kind of was playing a jack of all trades when I first got to Cleveland Clinic. And slowly, I've kind of evolved as predominantly an interventionalist. But I also think that I was lucky to train when I did, because when I try to explain my training route and what it would take these days to get to where I was lucky to be able to get grandfathered into, you know, there's a lot of PGY years when you start getting the double digits. So I, I'm very fortunate to be where I am and have the opportunities that I've gotten. Wow. That is truly amazing, all the experience that you've had. And you really bring a lot to the table and to your ACHD patients. And it seems like you're truly passionate um, about it and really care for your patients. And also, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Once again, our topic today is atrial septal defects. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but with the recent pandemic, I've been stuck indoors and watching a lot of movies, particularly some of the older movies. And as I was thumbing through my VHS tapes, which I will admit I do still have, um, I found the movie Back to the Future and remembered how much I loved the movie. But then I realized I don't have a VCR, kind of got rid of it last time I moved, or like maybe seven times ago when I moved. So I had to come back to, I don't know, 2021 and watch it in the digitally enhanced version. And really, that's being said, let's jump into our DeLorean uh, with Doc and Marty and fire up that flux capacitor and take a real look at the history of atrial septal defect. Oh my gosh, Sarah, what time period do we have to go? Won't it be just a few years? <laughs> More like a few centuries. Let's travel back to the Renaissance, back in 1513 to be exact. At that time, King Henry VIII of England declared war on France. And the Spanish first described Florida. Uh, unfortunately, Disneyland was not there yet. And the first Europeans traveled to the Pacific Ocean. Also during this time, Leonardo da Vinci was working on his last painting, St. John the Baptist. As we all know, Leonardo da Vinci was a jack-of-all-trades who not only was a magnificent painter, but also dabbled in anatomy. During his later years, he was fascinated by the human heart. And he was the first to describe how coronary artery disease leads to death and how the coronary arteries change with age. Amazingly, in 1513, he made note of a perforating channel in the atrial septum, which is now known as an atrial septal defect. Amazing. He truly is uh, quite the Renaissance man. I'm wondering, though, not to take away from his genius, whether Leonardo da Vinci realized there were actually more than one type of atrial septal defect. Unfortunately, he did not. But let's zoom forward a bit in our DeLorean. It wasn't until the 1800s when the anatomists described more than one type of atrial septal defect. They also documented that many people had an atrial septal defect on autopsy, but they were very small. They described those that had large defects as also having a large right pumping chamber. Then in the late 1800s, they also observed that paradoxical embolism can cross the atrial septum. Yeah, that's very interesting and so impressive that they came to those realizations so long ago with such little sort of modern technology and diagnostic imaging. 
So that little history lesson does give us some, you know, real appreciation of how we've come to understand structural heart disease as we know it today. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about how we classify and describe atrial septal defects today? Of course. There's technically four types of atrial septal defects, secundum ASDs, primum ASDs, sinus venosus defects, and coronary sinus defects. It's helpful to conceptualize them by location. Note that the latter two aren't actually at the atrial septum. First up is the secundum ASD, which is the most common type of atrial septal defect. They account for about 75% of atrial septal defects. Secundum defects occur in the center of the atrial septum at the fossa ovalis and can extend in pretty much any direction on the atrial septum. Primum defects account for about 15 to 20% of ASDs and are located at the inferior portion of the atrial septum and are within the spectrum of atrioventricular septal defects, also known as endocardial cushion defects or canal defects. Primum defects are also associated with a cleft in the left AV valve, as well as ventricular septal defects and subaortic stenosis. Moving on to the third type of ASD is the sinus venosus defects, which accounts for about 5 to 10% of atrial level defects and are located near the SVC right atrial junction or very rarely at the mouth of the inferior vena cava. Around 80 to 90% of sinus venosus defects are associated with partial anomalous pulmonary venous return. Cardionurates, you should definitely check out episode 106 for a fascinating case from our Boston colleagues, which highlights this. The final type of ASD is a coronary sinus defect, which accounts for less than 1% of all atrial level defects. A coronary sinus defect is the communication between the coronary sinus and left atrium. In essence, it's kind of an unroosted coronary sinus. Coronary sinus defects are not often seen in isolation, but are associated with complex congenital heart disease, such as heterotaxy syndrome. Great. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was an awesome summary of the different types of atrial septal defects. Dr. Krasuki, do you have anything to add to um, Sarah's excellent summary here of types of defects? Yeah, that was great, because not only did you go over some of the historical aspects, but you went over, obviously, all the defects and, and even some of the embryology it's interesting, but uh, if you go back actually to the you know ancient times and you're talking about the 1500s and you're talking about da Vinci, I think there's still controversy of whether da Vinci described a true secundum atrial septal defect or what he actually described was a patent frame in ovale because he talked about this perforating channel that goes from one side to the other, but he was describing the path actually from the right side over to the left. So I think that was may have actually been a patent frame in ovale. But obviously, you know, we're not going to discuss Peyton Freeman of Valley today, because if that were the case, we'd be talking about something that affects a quarter of the population. So in fact, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about sort of the rarer types of septal abnormalities, but PFO is the most common. Very interesting. Thanks so much, Dr. Krasuski. That is very interesting. I agree, Sarah. And, you know, we already alluded to this, but based on the stats that you had provided earlier and references to autopsy studies from the 1800s, whether we're dealing with PFOs, which are more common, or atrial septal defects, which may be less common, it seems like what he found potentially would be something that's more common than I would have initially expected. 
You are definitely on the right track there, Dan. Atrial septal defects account for about 10 to 15% of all congenital heart diseases. And the incidence is approximately 1 in 1,500 live births. And they're usually about 1.5 times more common in women compared to men. When they're diagnosed in childhood, studies have shown that nearly 100% of defects less than 3 millimeters will close by school age, so 3 to 5 years of age. Similarly, 90% of defects between 3 and 5 millimeters and 80% of defects between 5 and 8 millimeters will close in that time frame as well. However, defects greater than 8 millimeters are unlikely to close. Defect size often increases as somatic growth occurs in mid to late childhood. There are a couple of risk factors for having atrial septal defects, including family history, as well as certain maternal medications, including some SSRIs like paroxetine, as well as some antileptic medications such as valproic acid. There's also a handful of genetic associations with atrial septal defects, including Holt-Oram syndrome, trisomy 21, and Ellis-Van-Creveld syndrome. Atrial septal defects are often seen when there are other congenital heart lesions, such as Epstein anomaly, tetralogy of flow, ventricular septal defects, and other forms of complex congenital heart disease. Dr. Krasuski, could you walk us through how different types of atrial septal defects develop? Sure, Dan. I'm going to start by saying I am not an anatomist or an embryologist, but uh, interestingly enough, my uh, honors thesis in college was in uh, embryology. So I do know a little bit of embryology, and it's about the fifth week of gestation that the septum primum begins to develop. So remember that the heart really starts out as one essential tube, and then it separates out by forming walls, which we call septa. So it's about the fifth week of gestation, the septum primus starts to form, and it grows really from the roof towards the top of the atrium, and it grows down towards the endocardial cushions. And then this area, as it goes down, actually starts to form little tiny fenestrations. And at the same time as that occurs, you actually have the septum secundum to the right of it actually growing down as well. So when you have basically, and again, this is talking about the foramen ovale, remember everybody, regardless of how their septum develops, has a foramen ovale that is patent while they're in utero. And the reason for this is you want to direct your IVC blood flow across the atrial septum. Because remember, when you're swimming around in amniotic fluid, you don't want to be sending blood out to the lungs because the lungs are small and they're collapsed. And the pressure, obviously, in the lungs is going to be pretty high because of that collapse. And so instead, you're going to bypass the lungs through the IBC with that nice oxygenated blood you're getting from the placenta. So if the resorption is full at that part of the septum and you're left with a hole, then you essentially have a communication from the left atrium to the right atrium, which we refer to as a secundum atrial septal defect, even though the majority of the abnormality is actually in the septum primum or ostium primum. Now, that's how we refer to a secundum atrial septal defect. For the primum type defects, remember there is that growth that's down, and the, and the growth of the septum has to go to the endocardial cushions. And the endocardial cushions, from there you actually, they're on the medial side of the mitral and the tricuspid valves. And when you have an ostium primum defect, it's that part of the septum which doesn't properly form. And so you don't get that normal fusion at the middle. So what I tell folks is 
if you try to grab the heart, you know, you'll kind of grab it with your fingers in the middle, a heart model that sits on your desk or something, and you'll kind of grab it where all the valves and stuff come together. That is basically the crux of the heart. And in somebody with a primum ASD, that superior portion of where everything comes together, or it's really the inferior margin of the septum that hasn't formed properly, that is basically what you refer to as your septum primum type defect. And you can have, with those defects, those are atrioventricular canal defects, you can also have ventricular septal defects at that point as well. And as we talked about, and you talked about earlier very nicely, you can also have abnormalities of both the mitral valve in the form of a cleft and the tricuspid valve too in forms of, of a deficient uh, antraseptal commissure. So again, much like a cleft as well. Now, those are the, the, the predominant types of defects, but you've already mentioned that there's two other types as well. You can have your sinus venosus atrial septal defect, where this is really a failure of septation between the pulmonary veins and the superior vena cava and the right atrium. But people often forget you can also get an inferior sinus venosus defect where the same thing also can occur between an abnormal septation between the pulmonary vein on the lower end and the inferior vena cava as well. And finally, there's the unroofed coronary sinus where there's a lack of, of septation between the inferior left atrium and the roof of the coronary sinus. And this allows a communication between the left and the right atrium. And you can have a mixing of blood at the left atrium. So for this type of a defect, often we'll see oxygen desaturation as part of it because there's so much mixing in that coronary sinus, which remember is the lowest oxygenated blood in your body because it's coming from your coronary circulation where you extract the most oxygen. At that point, you can get mixing and you drop your oxygen saturation. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Krasinski. I think it's so imperative to understand, you know, the anatomic features of all of these different defects. And it's really helpful, one, to understand clinically how patients present and two, you know, the other milieu, uh, for example, the um, left AV valve cleft or the anomalous pulmonary venous return can really be much more understandable when you understand the anatomic etiology of these defects. Um, so Sarah, bring us uh, back historically a little bit. Back in the 1800s, of course, they didn't have things like electrocardiograms or echocardiograms or cardiac cath. So how did they, you know, clinically diagnose atrial septal defects in these patients? Well, this is where the art of medicine really comes in. There are some classic physical exam findings, but for the most part, people are asymptomatic for the majority of their lives if they have a small atrial septal defect. Those with moderate or a large defect may not present with symptoms until the fourth decade of life. Symptoms may include shortness of breath, exercise intolerance, or recurrent chest infections. Physical exam findings include elevated jugular venous pressure and a prominent parasternal impulse. The murmur that you'll hear consists of a wide fixed split S2 with a systolic ejection murmur due to increased blood flow across the pulmonary valve. If it is a large defect, you may have a diastolic flow rumble across the tricuspid valve as well. And if there's pulmonary hypertension, the S2 may be particularly loud. One thing to note is that the murmur is not from blood going across the atrial septum. Great. Thank you so much, Sarah. Dr. Krasuski, anything else you look for on your physical exam for these patients? 
Yeah, so if you actually start with a jugular venous pulsation, what you'll notice is, remember, with the right side, typically you're going to get a more prominent A wave than your V wave. And in somebody with a secundum atrial septal defect, you'll see a more prominent V wave than the A wave. It does take some practice, I think, to get used to looking at the jugular veins and looking at which pulsation is greater than the other. But if you try to time it, you'll notice that. I think it's a great point that you brought up about the murmur that you hear. Remember, it is flow across the pulmonary outflow tract. It's not flow across the atrial septal defect. And then just with regard to the splitting, I think it's important to think about how you get splitting in the first place. Remember that when you breathe in, right, what happens? You drop your intrathoracic pressure. You suck blood back into your heart. You lengthen out the amount of time that blood is pushed out into the pulmonary outflow, and you get that particular, you know, splitting of the sound. And then when you breathe out, basically the opposite happens. Now, just recall that what happens in somebody with a septal defect, you've got basically overload of that right side. When you breathe in, you get equalization between the two sides. And so the splitting that you get will not change with inspiration. That's why we refer to it as a fixed split second heart sound. So these are all good physical exam findings. Again, if you see somebody late in their course, you might see things such as cyanosis. Let's say you pick up somebody in whom their shunt has reversed because they develop severe pulmonary hypertension. That patient may have no murmurs that you hear because now you're not going to hear you know, any particular flow pattern because there's going to be equalization of the two-sided pressures. But what you may actually you know, hear or see is things such as cyanosis, clubbing, all the physical exam findings of systemic cyanosis. Wow, Dr. Krasinski and Sarah, I don't think I've ever heard a more comprehensive and exciting explanation for the physical exam findings that are associated with ASD, particularly with the, your explanation of the splitting and also that ASD murmurs not from the ASD flow, actually, but rather it's the associated higher pulmonary flows that you're hearing. So that was fantastic. And in general, the ACHD series is really highlighting the importance of a great physical exam, especially as many of these patients are asymptomatic until adulthood and may not realize they even have a congenital defect until later in life. So Sarah, what are some supportive diagnostic findings that we can see on the ECG or ECHO? And Cardinerds, definitely listen up because you're about to hear some serious high-yield pearls. Well, with small defects, the chest x-ray and EKG will probably be normal. However, if the defect is large, one might see right heart enlargement or prominent main pulmonary artery and increased pulmonary vascularity on chest x-ray. Your EKG findings really depend upon the type of atrial septal defect. In secundum atrial septal defects, you may see an incomplete right bundle branch block, right atrial enlargement, and right axis deviation. However, with a primum ASD, you'll see a left axis deviation and counterclockwise looping. So just to reiterate that, with a secundum ASD, you'll see a right axis deviation, but with a primum ASD, you'll see a left axis deviation. Finally, an EKG for a sinus defect will have inverted P waves in the inferior leads, suggesting an absent or deficient sinus node. In any of these, if there's severe pulmonary hypertension, RSR prime will be replaced by Q waves and tall monophasic R waves with deep inverted T waves. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sarah. 
Dr. Krasuski, anything else on ECG that you look for to glean some uh, clinical context about these patients? Yeah, those are all excellent points. I think, you know, just thinking about the sinus venosis defect, just recall that the uh, the sinus node sits high up in the wall superiorly. So you can have basically a junctional rhythm because there's a problem that originates because of the defect, but it's also important to recognize that the type of repair the patient may have may result in sinus node dysfunction as well. Um, that's one of the reasons now we've gone to essentially the warden procedure because it's less likely to disturb the sinus nodes. So when you see somebody with a junctional rhythm like that who's had a repair, that certainly makes you think of sinus venosis. I can recall several patients I've seen in my clinics that come in and all they know is they have a scar on their chest and they've had some sort of hole in their heart repaired. So if you ever see somebody with a, you know, a junctional rhythm who's had a hole in their heart repaired, think of sinus venosis because of the fact the sinus node runs there. As far as some of the other EKG findings, again, that is a very classic thing. I, I can guarantee you will see that on your cardiology boards, and that is the, the incomplete right bundle branch block and then the axis being different between the, the secundum and the primum. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. I, I actually um, had thought about ECG findings for sinus venosis defects. So that was a great um, tidbit. And you'll have to expand maybe on the warden procedure. I don't know if I'm familiar with that. Yeah. So the, with the warden procedure, what you're essentially doing is you take the superior vena cava and you basically move it over and bring it over to the right atrial appendage. So when you do that, basically, you create a way, because remember, you, as you told us earlier, or as you guys told us earlier, 80 to 90%, and I would say almost everybody with a sinus venosis also has anomalous pulmonary venous return. So the repair is actually to get those veins through the atrial septum without disturbing the anatomy too much. So when you bring the SVC to the right atrial appendage, it, it allows those veins to basically come over through the atrial septal defect and actually go directly over to the left atrium. So it's kind of a neat idea. And as we'll talk about later, when we talk about percutaneous techniques, we've kind of emulated the idea to create this uh, transcatheter approach to closing sinus venosis ASDs, which is a brand new idea and certainly very exciting. Before we get into our first case, Dr. Krasuski, can you just briefly touch on shunting across the atrial septal defects and what factors really determine the direction of the shunt? That's a great question. So, and it's important to recognize that a QPQS, which we get all very excited about, is a moving target in the natural history of this disease. So remember that when you talk about a shunt, you're describing how much extra blood flow the pulmonary vasculature is receiving to the systemic vasculature. So there's really two things that determine your degree of shunting. One is the size of the defect, and then secondly is the compliance of the two ventricles. So let's say you have a very compliant right side and, and left side, and in fact, you can have a larger defect than you can have, you know, a shunt that may be moderate-sized for many years. And then as you get older, your shunt can increase, right? So if you develop, let's say, systemic hypertension, and now your left ventricle becomes less compliant and your left atrial pressure gets higher, you may actually shunt more left to right. People, I think, forget about that pathophysiology. And that explains why somebody can present at age 60 or 70 or even 80 with an atrial septal defect and a large shunt 
And you often get the question, well, how could they possibly have a two to one shunt? They're 75 years of age. And in fact, what's happened is they had fairly normal compliance of their two sides. And so they didn't have that much shunting. And as they got older, the left sided compliance got less and therefore their pressure got higher and they started shunting more. I think most of us are aware of the opposite, which is somebody who develops pulmonary hypertension. In that case, your right-sided compliance starts to go down, and now your right-sided pressures get higher. And as a consequence, your LA to RA gradient is not that much, and so your shunt decreases. So again, it's a moving target. A QPQS at any point in time does not necessarily tell you what it's been or which direction it's going. It only tells you at that moment in time what's happening. So that's why for a lot of years, we were not that focused on this QPQS. It has, however, come back. And I think why it's come back into the guidelines is because it identifies patients in whom you have significant left to right shunt, where it's still safe to close a septal defect because you have a significant shunt and the patient is likely to obtain some benefit through closure of the shunt because there's so much left to right shunting going on. Well, thanks so much for that, Dr. Krasinski. And that's a great pearl, particularly with the ASDs presenting later in life with left to right shunt as the left-sided chambers get stiffer and compliance drops in those chambers, then ASD you know, ends up shunting more from the left to the right and becomes clinically apparent. So with that, let's take a breather and head on over to the CardiNerds ACHD clinic and put all these great pearls and tips and tricks into action. Sarah, do you mind going over some great cases that we have prepared for Dr. Krasuski? Sure, I'd love to, Dan. Our first patient up is a 25-year-old woman who presents reporting progressive fatigue and exercise intolerance. She was seen by her PCP who performed some basic labs, including a CBC and TSH, which were normal, but they did do a great physical exam and heard a murmur on exam. Her physician then ordered an echocardiogram, which demonstrated a large 14 millimeter secundum atrial septal defect. In our clinic, the exam is classic for a secundum ASD. You provide her with education about atrial septal defects and recommend obtaining a cardiac MRI prior to discussing closure. The cardiac MRI demonstrated a dilated right atrium and a right ventricular and diastolic index volume of 140. The right ventricular ejection fraction was 46, and there was mild tricuspid insufficiency with low normal LV size and function. The calculated QP to QS was 2.1 to 1, and the defect had at least 5 millimeter rims across the entire defect in all planes. How would you handle this case, Dr. Krasuski? Well, thanks, Sarah. So first of all, it's a young lady presenting with fatigue and exercise intolerance. It, it, it's interesting that this is a very common presentation. I've seen this a lot, and I've seen a lot of misdiagnosis. I've seen patients who are told they have asthma and are tried on inhalers with no improvement. I've seen patients who were treated for depression because, you know, in fact, they had uh, functional limitation and they were not too happy about it. I've seen uh, patients, again, treated for thyroid abnormalities, a variety of different things. So it's important to recognize that if you are functionally limited and young, that that's not normal and that it's obviously important to have a good listen and make sure that you don't hear anything suggesting an atrial septal defect because this story is common. Now, as far as sizing of ASDs, typically we say if it's less than 10 millimeters, we refer to that as a small defect. 
A moderate size defect is somewhere between 10 and 20 millimeters, and then a large is greater than 20 millimeters. But, you know, 14 is certainly in the moderate category. You know, the other findings here, you know, normal right ventricular and diastolic volume, you know, we, we do a lot of MRIs for a variety of different congenital heart lesions, but a normal right ventricular and diastolic volume index is going to be right around 100, somewhere between 80 and 100 milliliters per meter squared. So this is somebody with at least mildly dilated heart here. Now, the ejection fraction worries me a little bit that it's down, but the tricuspid regurgitation is mild. So as far as how do we approach this from a guideline standpoint, should this be closed or should it not? The guidelines say you need A, symptoms, which she has. B, you need to have predominant left to right shunting with a QPQS that's greater than 1.5 to 1, which is the second thing we have. And then the third thing you need to make sure is that there's not uh, significant pulmonary hypertension. And in this case, we don't have that particular value, but I can tell you with a QPQS that's 2.1 to 1 and with a mild tricuspid regurgitation, it's very unlikely that somebody would have significant pulmonary hypertension and not basically, you know, more than mild regurgitation. And then, you know, from an anatomic standpoint, you want to make sure, of course, it's a secundum defect. It's sitting right in the middle of the septum, that there are not anomalous pulmonary veins around. So you want to make sure that the veins all drain back to the left atrium. And then five millimeter rims are really the cutoff. So ideally, you want to make sure that you have adequate rims. Now, interestingly, we, we get all excited about the anterior superior rim. It turns out that's probably the least important rim. A lot of times we can actually put an occluder device and kind of sit it right up on there. It's really the posterior rim that's the most important because that's what holds the device. And I think if you, if you have an issue with that particular rim, then you probably shouldn't be implanting a device if it's less than five millimeters. But this person appears like a perfect candidate for a transcatheter closure the only other thing to make sure, again, is there's not other concomitant disease that needs, you know, surgical repair. You've ruled out tricuspid regurgitation, so there's no need for tricuspid valve repair. You know, and in a patient this young, I'm not worried about coronary disease or any other major comorbidities that we need to look for. So I think this is a perfect transcatheter candidate. Uh, that sounds uh, terrific, Dr. Krasinski. So basically for secundum ASD closure, we want to make sure the patient has symptoms. We want to make sure the QPQS is over 1.5 and that there's no significant pulmonary hypertension. And we w definitely want to rule out anomalous pulmonary veins. Are there any situations where you would not close the secundum atrial septal defect in the cath lab percutaneously? Yeah, so that's a great question, Dan. So first of all, that posterior rim to me is an important one. I think we're getting a little bit more cavalier now as we've become comfortable with devices. I think with a very large defect, there's a few problems that occur. Number one, it's not unusual that the angle as you're pulling back the device is challenging. So grabbing the rim is not so easy. I've had a few cases where I've had a very deficient anterior superior rim and I thought, ah, no big deal. I'll just oversize the device and pull it up across the septum. It turns out it's not so easy oftentimes to kind of grab hold. So that's, you know, times where I've, I've had more of a challenge. I think, again, the posterior rim definitely scares me. I wouldn't do it if there's an anomalous uh, pulmonary vein. And the other one is certainly if there's other things I mentioned, like if, there, if there's severe tricuspid regurgitation, what I can tell you is the TR will improve when you close an ASD, 
But if it's severe, I might think twice about doing that. If they have atrial fibrillation that's concomitant, some of those people are going to benefit from having left atrial maze at the time of surgery. Now we have, at times, I've had my electrophysiologist go in and do an ablation before. So we've actually ablated the patient and then we've closed their atrial septal defect. But we take this on a case-per-case basis. So I can't tell you there's one sort of cookbook approach to this. But those are the reasons why, if there's other things that need to be taken care of, you know, atrial fibrillation, abnormalities in the tricuspid valve, some of these patients also have concomitant mitral valve prolapse and mitral regurge. Again, if they have significant valve disease that needs to be taken care of, then ideally they ought to be handled surgically and not transcatheter. That makes uh, so much sense. And device embolization is obviously not ideal. And of course, you got to think about the patient holistically and what else is going on in their cardiac structure and physiology. And can't just see a hole, plug the hole, but actually think of the patient uh, in a very comprehensive way to get them the bang for their buck. And there's one other thing I would add as you were mentioning that, and that is, of course, pulmonary hypertension. I think you correctly noted, and the guidelines have changed recently. And one of the reasons they changed because of the fears of closing a quote-unquote pop-off valve for the right side. You know, it's important to recognize that that works as a pop-off valve for patients with pulmonary hypertension, but you also can get a pop-off valve from the left side. So I've seen cases where an ASD is closed percutaneously and the patient has moderate mitral regurgitation, and that becomes more significant because now there's not a pop-off for the left side as well. So either of those clinical situations is important to surmise as well. Um, and evaluate before you go ahead and just willy-nilly place a device. Um, you know, some of the things we'll occasionally do is we'll balloon occlude the defect and we'll remeasure hemodynamics. So that gives us a sense of what physiologically is going to occur to the patient when they have that defect closed. It takes a little bit of extra doing. It means putting in extra sheaths so you can measure pressures. But I think in the long run, that's very important to ensure that you don't make the patient sicker or cause complications. I think we used to think that we, re- we improved survival by closing ASDs, that we prevented atrial fibrillation. I think recent data has suggested that that may not be the case. We clearly improved uh, patient symptoms. Patients do feel better. Their exercise tolerance improves. So from a quality of life standpoint, this is an important intervention. But whether or not it actually improves survival or prevents patients from developing atrial fibrillation in the long run, I think that's still up to debate. That's very helpful. And I actually didn't realize that you could plug the ASD temporarily with a balloon and then remeasure, I guess, pulmonary pressures is what you're talking about to get a sense of how much of a pop-off valve it actually is occurring. Yep. And you can actually, one additional thing is you can actually get a wedge pressure. So if you're worried about the left side, you can actually see whether the wedge goes up as well. Now, I have not used that as an absolute reason for stopping, but I can tell you that there's a well-described literature of patients who develop heart failure immediately following closure, like within the first 24 hours. So when I see that, I'm going to keep a close eye on that patient. I may be more likely to place them on the regular floor overnight so they have close attention And then if they need diuretics, I'll give them diuretics after I close the defect, just because I'm anticipating that degree of diastolic dysfunction of the left side. So it's either side that can cause you trouble. And it's important to recognize you can measure both with the balloon up and assess how the patient's going to tolerate this. With one important caveat, when you put a balloon in, you're partially occluding the LA and the RA. So, you know, whether that is true physiology or not, I think is up to debate. 
Well, thank you. This is all absolutely fantastic. And as a budding uh, structural fellow, I am uh, riveted. But let's say you decided that the patient's ASD should be closed, but you thought that percutaneous uh, options would not be the best thing for the patient. What are the surgical options that we can offer patients? Yeah, so typically the surgeon, when they go in to repair this, is either going to do a primary stitch repair where they grab the two edges and kind of sew it together, or they're going to uh, to go ahead and take a pericardial patch, you know, piece of the pericardium and patch it and kind of sew it on. Sometimes they'll use other materials. There's a variety of different materials that have been tried for this, including things like, you know, core matrix and Dacron and other stuff. But the other thing to think about is the surgical approach. So the standard approach has always been a sternotomy or a, a mini sternotomy. But actually at Duke, uh, our surgeons are actually now doing minimally invasive thoracotomies. So the idea is basically you can do a small lateral thoracotomy, get the same access and be able to close the defect. So, you know, surgeons are smart. They recognize that uh, they're losing a lot of the patients to the percutaneous technique. So to keep up with that, they try to minimize their incisions because that's been the real bugaboo. I think the sternotomy for a patient, I've seen plenty of patients with sternotomies have issues even years down the road. So if you can avoid that with a thoracotomy, I think it's a nice approach. Yeah, I think um, at least in the adult world too, other than the mini thoracotomies, I think there's some um, innovative surgeons exploring robotic surgery for cabbage and for um, valve repair. I don't know if that has um, come into the ACHD surgical world as well. Yeah. So back when I was in Cleveland, we were doing a fair number of robotic techniques for that too. When I was sending folks to, uh, to surgeons, we did that certainly for our ASDs and our PFOs. I think patients are certainly much more excited about the robots than I think some of the cardiologists necessarily are. To be truthful, you know, I I often will comment to patients, you know, I kind of cover my face with my hand and I say, would you rather the surgeon look at your heart like this? Or then I take my hand away and I say, would you rather them look at your heart like this? you know, with your eyes open. So I think that, you know, there's a limit sometimes to what you can safely see and repair with less invasive techniques, particularly with robotics, um, because, you know, you're, you're depending on, on imaging internally. And, you know, for patients, for instance, with multiple defects, which I'll sometimes send them to surgery for that aren't easily accessible or they need multiple devices, it's really nice to have that full visualization of the septum that you get through an open technique as opposed to a robotic approach. Sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I would definitely feel more comforted with the uh, open approach as well. So let's transition gears here and talk a little bit about a different type of atrial defect and our approach to a different patient who is a 55-year-old man who was recently discharged from a hospital after another recurrent bout of pneumonia. At the time, there was also concern about pulmonary hypertension, so the patient actually underwent a right heart cath, which demonstrated a large step-up in saturation between the high SDC and right atrial saturation. His pulmonary vascular resistance was found to be 2.7 wood units, with a QPQS of 1.6 to 1. The hospitalist taking care of him was perplexed by this at the time and decided to order a bubble study, but actually didn't visualize any interatrial communication. However, this astute hospitalist was still not convinced, so referred to you as an outpatient in the ADHD clinic uh, to try and figure out this clinical conundrum. So Sarah, how would you start working this patient up? 
Well, it's funny you bring up this exact patient. I had one very, very similar come into clinic just a couple of weeks ago. And really just based on the story that you're giving me, I would be concerned about a sinus venosis defect with partial anomalous pulmonary venous return. I don't see that the patient is desaturated, but they do have a significant left to right shunt. So I would first start out by reviewing the echocardiogram and look for indirect clues for an atrial septal defect, such as right atrial or right ventricular enlargement. It's often very difficult to image the SVC and pulmonary veins in adults, as you guys can probably relate to, but those would be very important in this situation. So I would go ahead and get some cross-sectional imaging with either a cardiac CT or a cardiac MRI, which would provide us the information necessary to evaluate the pulmonary venous anatomy in relation to the SVC. You could also do a TEE, which would be another option. If the patient truly did have a sinus venosis ASD with partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, I would refer them to surgery. Uh, the surgical technique would really depend upon where the pulmonary veins drained into the SVC, because sometimes the pulmonary veins drain very remotely from the SVC RA junction. Great. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was a great sort of synopsis about how you would approach this patient. Dr. Krasuski, anything to add um, at this point in the uh, clinical case? Yeah, so great, great description of this particular case. This is a very common one. One of the things I would uh, cue you into is that I've seen several patients get referred to me for pulmonary hypertension with almost the same clinical story. And, and a lot of times they have slightly elevated pulmonary pressures. One of the things that's important to recognize that if you see somebody who's been followed for pulmonary hypertension and their pulmonary pressures have not changed very much over the years, but their right heart continues to be dilated, think that they may have missed a sinus venosus ASD because I've seen at least two or three of these who are treated for years with advanced therapies for pulmonary hypertension in whom we eventually found this type of a defect to be present. You know, it, this is a common one that can be missed with transthoracic echo because you just can't see it couple of things uh, additionally to mention. I like the TEE. I think, unfortunately, the art of looking at pulmonary veins with a TEE is something that's been slowly lost over time. It requires really somebody who's diligent to kind of go through and look at each pulmonary vein, but you can very nicely demonstrate on a TEE the defect, and you can demonstrate that the pulmonary veins drain on the wrong side. It's also important to recognize, as you mentioned, that some of the pulmonary veins can drain remotely. We talked about the warden procedure. Certainly somebody with remote drainage is not going to be a good candidate for a warden because ideally you want those veins to be through, you know, like I mentioned, the atrial septum. But certainly with our transcatheter techniques, it's something we've started looking at as well to know exactly where these pulmonary veins drain and can you localize them and ensure that you get them properly draining to the left side. Thank you for that. I definitely can relate those pulmonary veins. It does take a lot of talent and patience to look for them, hunt for them when you're doing a TE, especially if you're not necessarily thinking about looking for an ASV or a sinus venosis defect. And this point also about seeing right-sided chamber enlargement without a clear cause and triggering that workup for a sinus venosis defect has been something that we've been making the point here on CardioNerds uh, time and time again through a variety of episodes. So you'd actually, Dr. Krasinski, you actually mentioned the warden procedure earlier on as a surgical option. Is there a transcatheter option for sinus venosis at the ASDs? 
Yeah, Dan. So it turns out, interestingly, that these uh, pulmonary veins drain posteriorly back into the right atrium. And what that means for the technique is that if you think about it anatomically, there's sort of an anterior part and a posterior part. And that posterior part is where the anomalous veins are. And that posterior part also is where that venosus is. So if you think about it, if there was a way you could connect the superior vena cava down to the right atrium, thereby creating essentially two chambers. One is this kind of anterior chamber that goes from the SBC down to the RA, and then this posterior chamber that goes from the pulmonary veins across the venosus and into the left atrium. That would be an ideal repair. So people have thought about this, and they tried a variety of different techniques There were some initial reports of people trying to put stent within stent within stent. Now, actually, NewMed is the company that we are utilizing for this, has designed a longer covered stent. So the idea basically is what you first do is you have to ensure that you can protect those pulmonary veins, that when you place a covered stent, you're not going to cover these veins. It's bad to cover a pulmonary vein, especially a large one, because now there's no place for that vein to drain and you're going to increase the flow behind it. And theoretically, you could have a pulmonary infarct in such a situation. If it's a small pulmonary vein, there are collateral vessels and things like that that'll take things away. So what you do is the technique is basically you first go transeptally, you go in through the sinus venosus over to the anomalous vein, and then you do a series of power injections. You place a wire there, and then you can place a balloon to protect that vein. You then place a balloon going from the SVC to the RA to ensure that you can adequately uh, occlude this and not occlude the vein at the same time. And you can do power injections with the balloon up in this SVC to RA and ensure that that vein is not being compressed abnormally. And then if you're comfortable with that, you can then deliver a covered stent that runs from the SVC into the right atrium proper, thereby directing the flow from the SVC into the RA proper and leaving that sinus venosus to allow drainage of the anomalous veins into the left atrium. So much like a percutaneous version of the Warden procedure. Now, we've only done this a single time. We got proctored actually by Shaquille Qureshi was amazing because this happened, of course, during COVID. So we were uh, we were talking with the folks in London at the same time as we were doing the procedure. So we were using iPads and communicating, and they were watching what was going on on our screens. It was really neat to have sort of you know the, the their input because you know they've published a series of twenty five or so patients that they've done this in with really nice results. And for our patient, he was an eighty uh, plus year old gentleman who didn't want to have an open surgery. And ideally, you know, the surgeons didn't really want to do a major surgical procedure in someone of that age. And it worked out like a charm. I mean, he did beautifully with this. And he's a world traveler. Unfortunately, the the, uh, pandemic has also impacted his worldly travels. But uh, he just went to visit his grandkids and communicated back with me how well he was doing. So I was very impressed with how well this, this technique worked. It really sounds like the current standard of care is still surgical management. However, as Dr. Kaczynski mentioned, there are a lot of trials going on about how to handle the sinus venosis defects in the cath lab. And 
I can't wait to hear what some of the data comes out as in the next coming years. Dr. Krasinski, do you have anything else to, that you'd like to add in terms of consideration of how to manage these patients? Yeah, so you know, I've been asked about this transcatheter technique, you know, and, and how much we should offer this to, to our patients. You know, I think you correctly point out that it's still considered to be an experimental technique. We went to our IRB to get approval, and any patients we have like this, we're going to need to go to our IRB. But it is important to recognize that when we were first doing cases with, you know, with ASD occluders or, you know, closing ASDs or PFOs, we were in that same sort of situation. We were going to our IRBs. A lot of times, you know, when you go for devices, remember, you have to get an IND. And an IND essentially means that the case of what you're studying is rare, that only like there's 8,000 or something per year or fewer that are done. And if that's the case, it's going to be very challenging to do a large randomized clinical trial. But I'd recognize, you know, it's important to recognize you put in a, a big covered stent into somebody into their right atrium. Maybe that's not as good as a surgeon redirecting things with patch, you know, a Dacron patch or something. But the materials are similar to what the surgeons have been utilizing. So when I get asked that question, should we be offering this to everybody? I would say probably not. The majority of patients are still going to be able to be handled surgically, but there are going to be some patients that for whatever reason are either too high risk for surgery, are absolutely refusing surgery, or you know have other contraindications to an operative procedure where you can offer them a transcatheter option. And I think it's very exciting, but I don't think the technique we've got now is going to be replacing surgery anytime soon. Great. Thanks, Dr. Grzewski. I am also um, in such admiration of interventionalists that do ACHD percutaneous procedures, because as you mentioned, you know, some of these are, are, are relatively rare to be seen. And so to have the expertise to, you know, execute something like this percutaneously when you're not doing this very often is truly wonderful. So I'm glad to hear your patients doing well, and I'm sure you're extremely skilled in the lab. So um, thanks for well, sharing. I appreciate sure the kind words. I don't know about that, but okay. <laughs> no, excellent. So, um, one, one last case to review. Um, this patient that you're seeing in your ACHD cardio nerds clinic uh, has a history of trisomy 21 and a history of a complete balanced atrial septal defect that's actually been repaired in the past. Dr. Krasuski, when you uh, sort of see this limited history, as we sometimes see with patients coming into the clinic, are there other cardiac lesions that are associated with these primum defects? And what are the types of repairs that we um, undertake for patients with primum atrial septal defects? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. So first of all, just stepping back, trisomy 21, of course, AV canal is the most common lesion, but it's also important to recognize tetralogy can occur in those patients as well. So I have quite a few folks with Downs that I follow who have have AV canals, but I also have a few that I follow that have uh, tetralogy. And I actually have folks that have both lesions too. So both those lesions can be common. Now, in terms of primum defects, as we've mentioned, you, here you're mentioning a complete balanced atrial septal defect. Now, it's important to recognize when we get into atrioventricular canal defects, it, there's a lot of variety here. There's a lot of complexity to it. Interestingly, the complexity was described by Rastelli, 
which you may recognize probably for another session you've, you've done if you talked about the Rastelli procedure, which is the idea of using a conduit uh, from the right ventricle, the pulmonary artery. But Rastelli also, a remarkable guy, if you ever want to read a very interesting medical history, read about Rastelli because he did so much in his life before the age of, you know, I think he died in either his late 30s or early 40s of Hodgkin's lymphoma. But before then, he did two amazing things, like I said, that still carry his name. So Rastelli has a classification system for AV canals, but, you know, and, it, and it's fairly complicated. Basically, you can have a, different valves. You can have one common valve that straddles across, in which case you've got both an ASD and a VSD and one straddling valve. That one straddling valve can th- have three leaflets or five leaflets. It's very, it can get very complicated, but just to keep it simple here, the best way to think about it is either a partial atrioventricular canal or a complete canal. A complete canal means you have both an atrial septal defect and a ventricular septal defect. And when that occurs, you almost always have a cleft mitral valve as well. A partial atrioventricular canal can either be a VSD or an AST. So when you have a complete canal like this patient, they probably had a patch that repaired their ASD and they probably had a patch that repaired their VSD. And they may have actually had a mitral repair, a cleft repair as well. Usually the clefts can be just sewn together. It's a pretty, you know, again, I'm not a surgeon and I don't want to downplay what the surgeon does, but cleft repairs tend to be some of the more easy repairs of mitral valves as opposed to, you know, the adult type of repairs that require rings and all sorts of other stuff. But, you know, it's important to recognize that you're doing this repair on somebody that's so small. So these can be really, really challenging, not because the repair itself is challenging, but because the size of the heart that you're working on is so small. But some things to think about. So when you tell me about an AV canal that's been repaired, you know, what are the most common reasons for reoperation? Well, it turns out residual defects, either ASDs or VSDs, are on the top of the list cleft valve. So the, the clefts can be repaired early and sometimes you leave a cleft behind and that cleft gets bigger over time, just kind of wear and tear and the mitral regurgitation can get worse. So the second most common reason these folks need re-operation or re-intervention is because their cleft has gotten significant and they have severe valve regurgitation. And then thirdly, it's important to recognize that the septum is completely shifted in these patients. So we often talk about the valves and how you can tell an AV canal apart from somebody who doesn't have an AV canal. And one of the things we can we talk about is how there's apical displacement of the tricuspid valve normally. Well, in an AV canal, there's not. So the valves kind of line up. So that's one of the hints you can have that somebody's had an AV canal repair. But also because of these abnormal septa, you can actually have outflow obstruction. So it's not unusual to develop LV outflow tract obstruction basically related to the anatomy or to the repair. So that's the third major reason these people come to your reoperation in the future. It's basically because they develop outflow tract obstruction. So all three of those things ought to be thought about when you see one of these patients that's had a repair earlier on in life. Any of these things can occur. And of course, the best way to sort through these types of things is with imaging. And usually an echocardiogram shows you that anatomy particularly well. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Krzyzewski. I think that's very high yield, especially for those of us just studying adult cardiology. I think it's important to recognize all the sort of long-term 
sequelae that can occur post-repair in childhood for these patients. And it's also important, I'm going to add one more thing, and that's for trisomy 21. They're also at considerably higher risk for developing pulmonary hypertension as well with the AV canal. So particularly if it's unrepaired, that's, that's still one of those rare cases where we'll see a patient with Eisenmenger or whatever. We see a lot fewer Eisenmengers, but in my recent experience, it's been a lot in the trisomy population for whatever reason they just weren't operated on early or whatever, or just missed medical attention or whatever, and they end up with Eisenmenger-style physiology. Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate, um, but great to know and, and to think about. So we just went through a number of cases, and we talked pretty extensively about, you know, repairing whether surgically or percutaneously these atrial defects, particularly those with a left-to-right shunt greater than 1.5 to 1. Sarah, what happens over time if these defects aren't closed? Of course, Dr. Krasuski just alluded to uh, pulmonary hypertension and trisomy 21 and these complete AV canal defects. But can you describe maybe some other things that might go on? Yes, of course. We have quite a bit of information on this because cardiac surgery hasn't been around for, well, forever. So uh, a lot of natural history studies have provided us with a lot of insight into the hemodynamic effects of atrial septal defects. And as mentioned prior, the magnitude and direction of flow through any ASD really depends upon the defect and the relative compliance of the right and left ventricles. So that being said, those with moderate to large defects will have right atrial and right ventricular enlargement due to longstanding left to right shunt. But over time, the excess flow does result in pulmonary vascular remodeling, leading to pulmonary hypertension in about 5 to 10% of patients. And as Dr. Krasuski mentioned, that it's particularly high in those that have trisomy 21 with unrepaired defects. Pulmonary vascular remodeling can even be seen in individuals in their second or even third decade of life, but it may not be hemodynamically significant until many, many years later. And as the ventricular compliance and pulmonary vascular resistance change over time, the patients can develop Eisenmenger syndrome, where there's then increased morbidity and mortality in patients with moderate to large defects. Patients with ASDs also have a higher likelihood of developing atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, which can then lead to heart failure and all the other complications of strokes and they also have a lower peak VO2 compared to the peers without atrial septal defects. And that goes into some of the presenting symptoms for ASD. As we mentioned, one of them was exercise intolerance. Dr. Krasuski, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, it's uh, just to mention the pulmonary vascular remodeling, because, you know, I think people think that if you close the atrial septal defect, you're kind of out of the woods, you never have to worry about it again. And it's important to recognize that even if you have your ASD repaired, there's roughly about a 2 to 3% chance that you can still develop pulmonary hypertension. And from, from what we know about pulmonary hypertension, if you have pH with a uh, closed defect, it's actually a worse prognosis than pH with an open defect. So it's important to know that these patients can be, you know, at significantly increased risk when they develop pulmonary hypertension, and they probably need to at least be seen once in an adult congenital heart center, and ideally they should not be lost to follow-up long-term because they can represent with this particular complication, even with a completely successful repair. The other thing to mention is that even with a successful repair, 
the surgical and medical literature suggests that there's somewhere between a 10 and 15% chance of residual shunts as well. And those may get worse or, you know, over time and be associated with things like paradoxical embolism and other problems. So again, this is a group of patients that should ideally be at least followed up to some extent over time. And Dr. Krzyzewski, is it ever too late to close an atrial septal defect? Well, I would argue that if you've developed Eisenmenger syndrome, true Eisenmenger syndrome, it's probably too late. You know, there, there are case reports of patients getting treated with advanced medical therapies. So, you know, what we have now are therapies that target three pathways. There's the endothelin pathway, the nitric oxide pathway, and then the prostaglandin pathway. And so we have all these new medications, 13 different drugs that have been FDA approved, But even in the best hands, if the patient presents with Eisenmengers, what we know is that these medical therapies impact symptoms and and may even improve survival, but they probably don't reverse the disease. And I can count on my fingers the amount of cases that I've ever seen where somebody had uh, severe pulmonary hypertension in whom we've successfully then gone back after medical therapy and closed a defect. So I would say the Eisenmenger ones, particularly the ones who have systemic manifestations, the guidelines make it very clear that's a class three indication for closure, meaning if you close somebody with an Eisenmenger, you're probably going to lead to their early demise. So that should never occur. But I will say, and again, there's always a but on all these things, people have designed occluder devices now that have fenestrations. Even though we still won't use those for patients with Eisenmenger, if you have somebody who's got moderate degrees of pulmonary hypertension, closure with a fenestrated device or having the surgeon close the defect and leave a tiny fenestration or something patent so there can still be a pop-off valve for the right side is certainly becoming more and more attractive as we have all these advanced therapies from a standpoint of slowing the progression of disease or even improving quality of life in some of these patients. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Krasuski. And clearly, there are caveats to every scenario, which, as we're learning, is a theme in the ACHD series. Definitely reach out to your friendly ACHD specialist to sometimes think outside of the box to help your patient. Now, Sarah, hypothetically, or maybe not so hypothetically, since this is not such an uncommon scenario, say you have a patient who had an atrial septal defect surgically closed you know, 25 years ago, but now presents to you, she randomly ends up in your clinic. Is there anything that you'd be concerned about or would you think about this patient differently? Or was it like, case closed, ASD done, we're good to go. I now think of this patient as a regular risk, you know, for my general cardiology practice. Well, I do have a feeling you're going to be seeing some of these patients in your general cardiology practice for sure. Um, Well, then again, if you're doing structural, we'll see, we'll see. But overall, patients who really have had surgical closure prior to 25 years of age who had normal pulmonary artery pressures generally have a good prognosis. I know Dr. Krasuski mentioned that there is a slightly higher incidence of pulmonary hypertension, even if it has been closed. So they do need to be followed up. Additional things that we want to watch out for are the residual defects, and they need to be screened with echo for that at least once in their lifetime or anyone who's had an atrial septal defect, because you never know where that residual defect will show up. And all patients with a history of atrial septal defects, particularly those that were closed in later in life, require an ECG to screen for atrial arrhythmias, 
as I mentioned before, about 20% of patients with unrepaired defects will have AFib at about 40 years of age, and about 60% will have AFib at 60 years of age. So even if it is closed, it is a little bit lower incidence, but those are things you want to be thinking about. If the patient had a sinus venosus ASD with partial anomalous pulmonary venous return, the pulmonary veins need to be evaluated for stenosis or baffle obstruction. As you can imagine, if you're putting in a, a patch right along the pulmonary veins, you, it can become obstructed or narrowed, and we have to take a look at that. As mentioned previously, ASDs can be associated with other cardiac lesions, which gives us cardiologists other things to think about during follow-up. For example, patients with a primum defect and a mitral valve cleft, which was repaired, they may have a higher likelihood of developing either mitral stenosis or mitral regurgitation based on that cleft repair. And as was mentioned before as well, that if the cleft was just left alone, the cleft can enlarge over time and lead to increasing degree of mitral regurgitation, which then also sets you up for a sets you up for arrhythmias as well. Great, thank you, Sarah. That that was excellent, and I think you started highlighting. Um, in particular, it's really important to think about different things if patients have surgical versus percutaneous repairs, because those may or may not carry sort of different risks with them later in life. Dr. Krzyzewski, anything else to add about when we think about patients later in life, depending on what type of closure they had and even, you know, how far along they were prior to their closure? Yeah, I think that was a good laundry list of things that you're going to look at. Again, the things to think about, you know, who's a high risk for complications long term. The earlier the repair is, the better they're going to do long term. So that means, you know, you mentioned 25 years of age, probably the biggest paper that compared atrial fibrillation risk was the Gadzoulis paper that looked at 40 as the cutoff. So if you're repaired before the age of 40, there was a very low risk of developing AFib going forward. Whereas if you were repaired after the age of 40, it was considerably higher risk of developing AFib. So what, what the magical age is, nobody really knows. But what I usually say, if it's in the childhood years, you're less likely to have complications. If you're in the adult years, more likely to have complications. The size of the defect, so the bigger the defect is at the time of you know, presentation, um, the larger the shunt and stuff, probably the greater the risk of developing uh, complications long-term. You know, the presence of concomitant disease that's repaired at that time makes you think more of complications. And then basically, you know, the age of the patient when you see them. If you see somebody who's 50 years old and, you know, they had surgical repair 30 years ago, they're more likely to have complications than if somebody comes back to you at the age of, you know, 25 and they had a repair at age, you know, 15 or something. So it's really the, the amount of years, you know, the, the tincture of time does not help you in this case. You tend to have more complications. And again, if you remember the big three, it's always arrhythmias, heart failure, pulmonary hypertension. And it's that for every shunt lesion, whether it's an ASD, a VSD, a PDA, you know, wherever the shunt may be, those are the three big things that you want to t think about. And then you've mentioned the ones that are very specific, the more complex defects like the AV canals. There's a lot of extra anatomy to think about, obstructive anatomy, things like that. And those you really have to 
you know, have to kind of dissect a little bit out and try to figure out exactly what their problem is and how symptomatic they are and also what the risk of repair or re-repair is. You know, having a congenital surgeon evaluate the patient and not someone who doesn't see these particular patients is also very critical. We know that the outcomes are better in the hands of congenital surgeons uh, for congenital heart defects than they are for non-congenital surgeons. That's actually a great take-home point for shunt lesions, thinking about arrhythmia, heart failure, and pulmonary hypertension when we continue to follow up and care for these patients. So this has been an absolutely wonderful discussion. Dr. Krasuski, we definitely uh, are excited about asking you this next question. What makes your heart flutter about taking care of patients with adult congenital heart disease? I think it's the same thing as I mentioned to you earlier. I think, first of all, every single patient is an interesting story. Whether or not they have, you know, whatever their lesion is, just how they got to you and, you know, where they came from is always fascinating. I think, secondly, the field has been moving forward so quickly over the last couple decades. You know, when I got into it, it was 20 years ago, and we were just on the cusp of... uh, you know, starting clinical studies and stuff. And now we've got all these great databases. We've got a database which is uh, prospectively collecting data from patients that was started by Anitha John and her group up in DC um, that I've had the fortune of being able to collaborate with. That's really exciting. I think there's so many interesting research questions that gets me excited about this. I often tell the fellows, if you want to choose one field where you'll be continuously asking and potentially hopefully answering questions in the future through your research, ACHD is definitely one of them. So I think you really can't go wrong. If you decide on ACHD as a field, I think you'll be, uh, you'll be enjoying every day of your existence like I am. Every day I go to work, I can't I I get excited to go regardless of what it is, whether I'm in the cath lab looking at echoes or uh, or seeing patients in clinic. It's always very exciting. I love that, Dr. Krasuski. I I too agree. I think ACHD is a broad field. So many overlaps with other specialties. And I think as we continue to incur more and more ACHD patients into our adult cardiology experience, I think we'll learn to sort of love and appreciate it the same. Sarah, we'd also love to hear about your experience as an ACHD fellow and your career plans moving forward. Yeah, I have, I have to agree. Every day going into work, it you never know what you're going to see. And it's always a joy to be that detective and really be involved in your patients' lives and understand really where they're coming from. And it's, it's definitely a, a blessing to be involved in their patient care. As for my career goals, well, right now I am absolutely thrilled about advanced heart failure in congenital heart disease. And with a kind of a specific focus on mechanical circulatory support. So really, until we have definitive repairs for all forms of congenital heart disease, particularly single ventricle physiology, there will be a need for complex transplants and mechanical circulatory support, as well as management of advanced heart failure symptoms. So for the last few decades, really the only option for these patients was transplant. But now there is becoming a second option, which is mechanical circulatory support. And with uh, mechanical circulatory support, these patients can rehab, they can improve their nutritional status, they can improve their strength, as well as end organ functions. This really all being said, this leads them to be in a better transplant candidate should that arise in the future. 
Excellent. That's so interesting, Sarah. And, and kudos to you for being passionate about taking care of some of these most complex and probably most ill patients as we come to see them in the hospital. And thank you so much for everyone for joining this wonderful episode. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank <laughs> you.